gangster rap came out, I, you know, that was one of the things I wanted to be. So I got into being a gang member. And my mother uh, ended my drug career um, within the first six months of me even getting started. I'm at the drug dealer's house. And next thing I know, I get a phone call from the drug dealer. Uh, he passes me the phone. He's like, it's your mother. One of the biggest struggles that I had was finding where I fit in. It's not that I was alone. It was that I was lonely. So learning how to stop feeling lonely, you can feel abandoned, but when you realize that you got a source, you're never without. On this particular show, there's this black guy sitting in a chair with his legs, you know, super tight, very posture. They would hurl some evil, mean stuff to him. And his conversation was so intellectual. It was accurate. He could take what they said, turn it back around, and let them see themselves. And I, I'm sitting there and I'm like, who is this? Like immediately, I heard nothing about Islam. I didn't hear any of that, but I just knew. They said at the end, Louis Farrakhan. I said, this the guy? They said, you gotta give up pork. You gotta give up, like literally just running that alcohol, all of that. And I was like, oh, okay. That day, I gave everything up because I was always interested in religion, right? But no answers when I was little. I wasn't getting answers. It was always like, well, God works in mysterious ways. The beautiful thing that I loved about the Allah Made Me Funny comedy tour was you had a microcosm of all of these communities and each one of them made major milestones that made Islam respected. We had to educate um, our community that it's okay to laugh. I always say, let your hair down, so so to speak, sisters, please keep your hijab on, but let your hair down, so to speak, or relax. Because even when somebody, if you, if you know that you relax, the flaws are shown, right? But that's a blessing because if you're amongst people who genuinely love you, which should be our community that actually love us, then you can have someone correct your behavior. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslim Centric Podcast. My guest today is American Muslim comedian Azim Muhammad. And he's one of the original members of the Allah Made Me Funny comedy tour, which was founded by Preacher Moss, who I interviewed recently. Allah Made Me Funny toured across the world from 2003 and helped put many comedians on the global map, including Azar Usman and Muammar, who have gone on to mainstream success. It was a significant tour because it was after 9-11 when many Muslims in the West were struggling with their own identity and where they felt they could call home. Azim was visiting Glasgow and I was fortunate to spend the day with him. He's a, he has an amazing story which he shares and I love his authenticity and his honesty during today's conversation. He shares his experiences growing up, facing adversity during his childhood with challenges at home, loneliness, feelings of abandonment and racism. His life mirrored the rise of hip-hop and rap music and he briefly got, briefly got involved in gang culture and drug dealing before his mother put an end to that. And it's amazing when he talks about that story, of it, that part of his life. Azim's life changed in an instant when he saw Louis Farrakhan on TV and he converted to the Nation of Islam. 
In this interview, Brother Azim talks about how Allah made me funny, helped teach the Muslim community in the West how to laugh. And he also speaks about the sacrifices he, he has had to make and how he strives to be a better person at work and at home. So I hope you enjoyed this very honest discussion. Just a reminder, if you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcast because it does help other people find uh, the content and also helps me know and helps us know if anybody is listening out there. I've also still got a newsletter which gives a little bit of behind the scenes context to some of the interviews. So I'll share the link in the episode notes. But I hope you enjoy this uh, episode. I think it will uh, is very emotional and a uh, few laughs in there as well. And until next time, look after yourself. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. So assalamu alaikum brother Azim. Walaikum salam bro, how you feel? Yeah, good alhamdulillah. So thank you so much. It's really um, been a really good opportunity. You're in Glasgow. Uh, for a comedy tour, yeah. and uh, we managed to hook up, and uh, it's, it's it's quite fortunate because recently, as you know, uh, I interviewed Preacher Moss. Yes, the the incomparable Preacher Moss, and yes. that's how we kind of connected a little bit. So, thank you so much for your time. Really looking forward to it, and hearing a little bit around a bit about your life and what's got you from where you know where you started and where you are just now. So. Yeah, man. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate that. So you're um, so you're from America, uh, I think born and brought up in America. Right. Um, can you tell me a little bit in terms of your early kind of life, you know, early childhood experiences and what family life was like growing up? Because I think for many of us, the people that we become later on in life is very much rooted by our experiences when we're younger. So tell me a bit about your life and your early life. Man, uh, this is a therapy session. Uh so growing up for me, man, I grew up in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. And when I was there, childhood for me wasn't the greatest, you know what I mean? Um, uh, my mom and I um, were together for a while. My step, my, my biological father passed uh, when I was five or six years old. So, uh, but before that, I wasn't, I never grew up with him. I was, uh, he, he was in prison for, for most of my childhood. And uh, so it became when she took on another husband, uh, my sister's father, who, you know, I used to ask a lot, can we take her back? Um, <laughs> that used to be the running joke if I could send my sister back because um, I lost a lot of gifts okay. once she came. Uh, she cut into my my gift um, allotment. Um, but, you know, growing up with them, uh, everything was pretty good. My stepfather, though, was not a really nice man. So uh, me and him didn't get along. So we dealt with a lot of those issues. And little did I know it had more to do with, um, I guess some men deal with an ego of this is not my child. Uh, and so they start equating the child to another man and all of this that could transpire. So... Needless to say, I moved to my grandmother's house, which is, uh, to this day, she's been like one of the most cornerstone pieces of my uh, happiness in my life. Uh, most of my happiness came from being with my mom or being with my my grandmother and my uncles and aunts. And so um, from the time I was about 12 or 13, I lived with my grandma, moved uh, over there, and really started kind of figuring out my life. So for me, I was pretty much always an introvert, even though people think I'm an extrovert. 
um, because I wanted friendships, you know, I wanted friendships. So I would kind of act out to get the attention, but I was the kind of guy that would overdo it. So I was the guy that was too cool to be a nerd, but too nerdy to be cool. And I always tried to accentuate the cool side as opposed to the nerdy side. And uh, But I was a book lover, been a book lover my whole life, um, a music fan. Um, and those were the two things that throughout my whole life were constant that I could count on. Book, books and books, music? Books and music. What sort of music? Oh, uh, man, everything. Um, but jazz, hip-hop, of course. Uh, me and hip-hop share the same birth year. Um, so those two particular musics in, in particular, because um, I played the drums growing up. So I always felt like with jazz, you could put your own um, narrative to the music. Even though the music itself had its own conversation, you could kind of add your own narrative to that. So music gave me that chance to have that longing for relationships. So it was always soothing when I was anxious and things of that nature. So, um, got into okay. yeah. No, I was gonna, just going to to interrupt, but I was just like wondering a little bit around when you said you were kind of that introvert, but you know maybe coming across as an extrovert, and I, and I think you see, you often see that actually people that have gone on that to that perform or that in the public eye. You know, over time, you realize how introverted a lot of people are. You know, yeah. and I think it's more complex than just being a total introvert and extrovert. You know, and I think I find that fascinating as well. You know, yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a flux in it, right? Yeah. Because to do what we do, it's almost like you've had all this contained inside for so long that now it's a chance to, you know, spew it out uh, to really uh, vocalize yourself. And I think for me, comedy came as a result of not having a lot of people that were, or that I felt were interested in what I had to say, the way I saw things. And so now it's like you you have the floor, yeah. you know what I mean? And were you f funny as a child when you were saying you're trying to- I don't you, think so. No? <laughs> you, you weren't the class clown? Or Listen, like I, I was the most suspended right. child in my school, but I was not the one that was uh, the naturally funny. Give you an example. Uh, if if I did something, let's just say a friend of mine did something at school, in front of the school teacher, the teacher would see it, give him a warning, like, hey, just sit back down. But you could even see in her face she thought it was funny, right? But she has to say something. I do the exact same thing, maybe to another degree, a little higher, going to the office, I'm sent home. I could never do it right, you know what I mean? So for me, it was uh, really difficult, you know, because again, I'm trying to fit in as opposed to just being good with who I am. And who I was was not the one that wanted to cut up in the in the room, but was just starting to notice that these are the people that are getting noticed, the ones who create a little bit of mischief or what have you. So yeah, yeah. And do you recall, I mean, it sounds like there was a lot of, adversity you were facing growing up, particularly in those early years when, I guess as a young child, you try to make sense of everything and yeah. usually you want a bit of stability. And I mean, do you remember what impact that had on you? Was, were you quite a quiet child? Did you kind of become a bit introverted in yourself or did you seek friendship and belonging? Or what, what I mean, what do you think, how you coped with everything that was going on around you? Man, I, you know, that's a good question. I think for me, one of the biggest struggles that I had was finding where I fit in 
Um, so even amongst my friends, I wasn't, I, I don't really feel like when I look back at it, I don't really feel I had friends. I had people that I played with, um, but they were friends with each other, but I really always felt myself as the outsider. Um, and I think it really dealt with a lot of issues of abandonment. You know, when I think about everything, so I was always starting to want to please people so that they wouldn't ultimately leave me. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, and it wasn't until I became older as an adult and maybe in my 30s that I started realizing um, you don't have to worry about people leaving you, you know, because that's not your call. That's outside of your control. But it, it may, you know, it made me start realizing I had control issues because you wanted the people. So now you're trying to hold on to them. So you're trying to control it. You're trying to control an environment. You know, it's similar to setting up like the studio. You 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 want to make sure that you got the lighting right. You want, thank you uh, to the brother. Uh, you want to make sure you got the sound right. But if, if something's not within your control, how do you then handle it? Um, so it made me a, very anxious because uh, it didn't, I felt like even in those environments, um, I was conducting myself in accordance with the way that I thought people wanted me to be, not realizing that maybe actually they actually see me for who I am and genuinely like that person. So um, I think it caused me to be a conformist for a very long time um, to the point where when um, gang gangster rap came out, I, you know, that was one of the things I wanted to be. So I got into being a gang member and wanted to get into selling drugs. So I started doing that because these were the things that I thought this is this is the pattern, even though my father, may Allah be pleased with him, uh, passed as a result of doing those very type of uh, activities. So, you know, I think growing up, it, those were the things that I dealt with and wanting to be included even though my core, the way I was raised, none of that was remotely even in my circle, you know. Um, so it just, you know, it really put me in a very weird way because I still knew better and I still wasn't even very successful <laughs> with any of it. You know what I mean? It's like when you've really been raised in a particular way, no matter what you do, you're not going to be the best at it if it's not in accordance with that lifestyle that you came up in. And was religion or faith um, present when you were growing up in, in that early days as a child? It was. I mean, growing up, I grew up as a Christian. So my grandmother uh, and my mother were Baptist. Uh, my father's mother, uh, she was Catholic. So they, they had their own little uh, difference. I'll never forget the first time I went to a Catholic, uh, uh, Catholic church. And I went in and I saw them putting water on. And I was like, but didn't we take a bath? And, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, she was like, no, you need to put a little water on your head. I was like, but I, you know, I've washed my face. I'm not, I'm not, you know. Um, and so my grandmother, you know, and my mother, they were Baptist. So I would go to Sunday school and learning about the Bible. My grandmother was very, very religious, very faithful uh, woman. Um, that was my great grandmother and my grandmother same way. Um, and so they always took us there and even though it wasn't um 
I wasn't a Bible thumper, if you will use those terms, but I was the kind of person that wanted to still read the Bible. Like I would read it and uh, remember going to Sunday school, asking really interesting questions as a child. Like, you know, they talked about Adam and Eve and uh, their first two children were Cain and Abel and it was the only people on earth. And I'm like, but then how did anybody have more children? So, you know, in Sunday school, they, I was like a disruptor, but not in a bad way. I never acted out in, in, in that particular element. I literally was curious. Like when I learned about reproduction and things of that nature, I was like, if the only woman on earth was Eve, then how could you have more children? How could her children who were boys have more? So you're quite a curious child and yeah, just wondering yeah, what happened. Yeah. And so tell me, or what are you able to tell us about, you said then you, you were looking for that belonging and you went into, I guess, things perhaps, you know, from your father or other people mm. had been involved and you mentioned gangs and drugs. Yeah. I mean, can you, can you tell something? Because I guess, look, I'm, I'm a, a Scottish Muslim with Pakistani heritage. Mm. Um, our, very much our knowledge of black culture is from movies and from what we see on TV over the years. I mean, what, what was it like for you then? What is What were those kind of adolescent years like? What were you doing? Was that kind of the norm that a lot of your friends and peers oh, were doing you, that? So, so what was that the expected expected route that young black men would go into and find you know go into gangs and? Well, that's funny because growing up for me, it wasn't about that. Like that wasn't the lifestyle in my community. Um, obviously, yes, there are tons of people that grew up where drugs and 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 gang violence and all of that was the norm. But in my household, that wasn't it. I mean, my my from my grandparents to my great grandparents uh, who who got themselves out of slavery, to uh, all the way to my mom. You know, even my stepfather, to his credit, was a hardworking individual. It wasn't ever about uh, anybody that I personally saw moving and distributing drugs and things of this nature. It was never that. Um, but. As I was growing up, this is so interesting because it's almost like the evolution of a zine equals the same time as hip hop coming into being. Because 1973 was the advent of hip hop. It was the birth of hip hop. I was born in 1973. At this same time, there was a consciousness within hip hop. So you had people who were um, amazing, like, of course, the originator of, of rap, uh, African Bambada, um, and you had DJ Cool Herc and so many of these people. Uh, you had a, a group called Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five who created the message. Um, you had people like KRS-One uh, who, were, who were sharing knowledge, Rakim Allah, who was just always talking to you about different things, about the faith, about being a better human being, helping your community, right? So Chuck D and public Ch enemy oh, Chuck and stuff D, and yeah, all of them, all of these, all these giants were were really doing something positive. So it gave you, uh, I always call it subliminal suggestions, right? Because I'll never forget, um, Rakim said, um, he said, all praise is due to Allah, and that's a blessing. With knowledge of self, there's nothing you can't solve. At 360 degrees, you'll evolve, right? And so I'm I'm just a kid just saying this, but I never knew who Allah was. I thought it was like a la carte. I didn't know. But 
at the same time, I, it just stayed in my memory. You know, when I listened to uh, Chuck D, you know, uh, the different things that he was talking about as it related to black culture and doing better and, and being a community. But I felt like even in my life, I had community, right? But then right at the time when I was becoming um, an adolescent, getting into my teenage years, now the advent of uh, rap shifted from that, that mindset and then the powers that be that started realizing there's money to be made and that this is getting into the messages in the minds of the youth with being positive, they introduced uh, gangster rap. Yep. So then there was Ice Cube and yeah. Ice T. So these are the early 90s and stuff. Is that right? This is about 80s? 85, 86. There was this movie called Colors that came out. And Colors was about gang activity in South Central Los Angeles. So you had the Crips and the Bloods. We go to the movies. We see this. And immediately... As soon as the show was over, it wasn't about walking away with a message of, if you get into this life, death is going to follow you. That wasn't the message. The message was, you need to get into gangs and what is crack cocaine? So we immediately went back to school choosing sides. Now for us, it's more of like fun. Like this is going to be Crips and Bloods. I like blue. That was one of my favorite colors in my life. I, I chose to be a Crip. A lot of people at my high school, they were wanting to be Bloods. Whereas initially we thought this was like cool. We started later finding out that's the next thing we know. We hear about crack cocaine. So the the uh, album by uh, N.W.A. came out, Dope Man. And now the music is the music is like almost a trans type music, you know, black people and brown people. We rhythmic people. We we love we love music. And so if you put a beat with something that sounds good as a rhyme, not not message wise, but just giving you the music opens you up to get to receive a message, right? So now you're getting this message about dope and the girls liking and you mix this with puberty and things of this nature and nobody to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This message is is not what you want. You know, the music is good, the sound is good, but the words and what what weight words carry, right, is 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 relevant in there. So None, enough to say that that was the thing that started making so many of us uh, who were raised properly to start becoming, uh, following the course of hip hop almost. like And literally at the advent of uh, West Coast rap, or as I call it, gangster rap, at the rise of that, they started silencing the East Coast or the consciousness rap. So that died down and the only thing that they started raising up was this other type of um, mindset of activity. When in reality, yes, it was just another um, segment of the community, but it it started to, they took the muffler off of that and they put the muffler on positive rap music. And so that, that was almost where the advent of the change of my mindset started going. And I think, I think especially during your teenage years for all of us, a large part of being a teenager is finding your identity, isn't it? And finding your mm, tribe, yeah. metaphorically and literally, you know, is that, you know, who are you? You know, the questions of where do you belong? Who are you? And I think that's where, you you know, often in your teenage years, people are seeking that sense of 
fitting into something. And I think that's certainly, you know, gangs and stuff have that yeah. kind of um, belonging, isn't it? And, yeah. you know, and especially the young man, you know, is, is something that can be appealing, can be rebellious, can right. be, you know, it, right. it meets a lot of kind of um, boxes as well. So I think that's, it's fascinating how that kind of impacted on, on what you're going through. So is was that... Um, was that something that, I mean, how did that go down at home and how did others, oh, did yeah, it have, that, an, that definitely did it have was an impact a, in terms of, you know, people around you and what you? No, you know, uh, it definitely wasn't something that was going down at home. My mother was not having it. My grandmother was not having it. My uncles, they were like, we your gang, we your tribe. There's none of that. Um, so anything that I, I the, everything that I got myself into was very short lived. Um, my mother uh, ended my drug career um, within the first six months of me even getting started. Um, I would never forget. I'm going to buy some drugs to go sell, and uh, I'm at the drug dealer's house. And next thing I know, I get a phone call from the drug dealer. Uh, he passes me the phone. He's like, "It's your mother." Not his, not his cell phone. This is because you know cell phones first came out, but everybody still had a house phone. And I get it, and my mom's on the phone. It's like, uh, if you uh, want to continue to do this, if you ever get caught, I'm never coming to get you. When I got to the house, she was crying. That was in the. That was into that. Uh, gang activity, same thing. I never got into any gang fights. We would go out and, you know, wear our colors and things of that nature. And thankfully, I'm glad I never got into any of that because I, I believe I know that Allah has a time for us all and we're not going before then. But I could have easily been in a chair. I could have easily been a vegetable. I could have, you know, easily been incarcerated. I could have all of those things. So my family, even though I felt alone, in the moments when I started to show them that I'm looking to find myself, they would let me know that we see you. Uh, I wasn't under the radar, you know what I mean? So things like that really uh, still really helped save save me. So, yeah. Sounds like that, that was a lifeline for you to get, you know, to have that family around oh, you yeah. at the early stage. Oh, there. man, listen, listen. I mean, just think about it. You're not living with your mother. Your father's gone. Your stepfather's non-existent in your life. Uh, all you got is music, right? Which is how I could listen to so much of this different different genres of music um, and watch television. So you take that with a lot of time on your hands with no parental um, supervision because my grandmother worked till nine at night. I'm, you know, so I'm home. I got aunts and uncles that are five to seven years my senior, but that which means they have girlfriends, boyfriends. They, you know, they're they're doing their thing in in our world because I didn't ra I wasn't raised in a Muslim household. So this is just the the run of the mill. So you got a child looking for a direction and can go anywhere. What advice would you give to people, young people that are living in those sort of situations now? And I mean, many years later, and I guess you've had a chance to kind of reflect on things and and learn. You know, as we mature. Um, people that are growing up in households, you know, that are difficult, family relationships that are difficult, people feeling quite alone or maybe not fitting in at school, etc. I mean, what advice do you think you would give them now or that would, you know, that would help? I think the biggest thing that I would give them is understanding that as alone as you think you may be, you always got the creator. 
you always have a voice inside yourself that still is uh, speaking to you. And to me, I believe that that's Allah. He said he breathed into us his own inspiration at our own beginning. So he's always with us. So that 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 um, that person that you hear that's telling you, hey, don't do that, that's him. Even when you're going through your darkest moment and you still feel like you want to keep pushing, that's him. Figure out a way to keep turning that voice up and drowning the other ones out. And it's talking to other people, being candid, not not feeling afraid that you can't tell somebody that you're uh, struggling. I remember coming up when I was eight years old, eight or nine years old. I don't even remember how I got to this point, but I was very vocal. I remember um, fighting all the time. And I remember I telling my mother, I said, I need to go talk to somebody. This is bef- this is 81. Like this is, and in the black community, there is no you going to counseling. Um, but I've always felt like you have to speak up because had I not spoken up, I probably would have turned to drugs and alcohol. I, I believe that a lot of people turn to these things because they're holding so much in. And you got to take the pressure off the valve and, and talking to somebody. There's somebody in everybody's life that they can trust. No, that's fantastic. excellent advice. Did you face much racism growing up? Oh, I was just thinking about that the other day. Even though we grew up in a, um, when I lived with my mom and my stepfather, we lived in a mixed neighborhood. So we had white people and black people. You know, the black people finally was able to move in. Um and then they started slowly packing up. But we had two uh, white families in our neighborhood. Now, this is the funny part. The two black, the two white families probably made more money than all the black families. So it might have been 14 of us. Yeah. And our families still didn't make the amount of money that these two made with one person income. The <laughs> I never forget, this is uh, one guy, a uh, white man, uh, his name... Um, I uh, can't remember his name, but his sons were Tim and Harold. He only, he worked for McDonnell Douglas, okay? Uh, this is now Boeing, but he worked there. They had a bowling alley in their in their basement. If we wanted to play any sports, they were the only ones that had the baseball bats, the baseballs, the gloves, the proper baseball. Uh, you know, we use broomsticks as baseball bats. They had everything. Football, they had the footballs. They had they had everything but the jerseys. They could even make the lines in the yard, right? They had the yard. Like, they had everything. The other one down the street's name was Steve. I forget what his father did, but he had the only pool in the neighborhood. Now, this is where the racism came in. Um, I was one of the lighter skin in, in, our, in our community, and I don't know how it is in the Indo-Pakistani community, um, but in our community, the darker your skin, the more that you're rejected, the lighter your skin, the better you fare, right? Well, we had a friend that was darker than me, right? Closer to my 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 jacket color, but he had curly hair, right? So of all the ones of our friends, he was the only one allowed to go to this white guy's pool. Even though the little kid in our neighborhood, his name was Steve, he played with us and everything, but his parents literally only let that child of all of us go into his pool parties. Um, and so I, you know, used to wonder like, what, what is this all about? You know, um, 
And we never, I guess I never had experienced racism, but I, that was my first experience with classism. Like they, to them, that was the, the project that they could, you know, most fit, that most fit their idea of, hey, we like black people type deal. But with racism, uh, I, I remember going to, uh, I got profiled before when I was in college. At uh, this time, I'm living a good, you know, positive life. I became Muslim by then. And um, there used to be a drink called Mystic Iced Tea. Look like a little cooler bottle or whatever. We pull up and then this police officer literally pulls up beside us and tells us to pour our drinks out. So we pour our drinks out. He's like, what are you guys drinking, 40s? I'm like, sir, I don't, I don't drink. Sure you don't. Why, why'd you have a cooler? We show him the bottle. It was a mystic iced tea. No apology. He said, well, you know, I didn't catch you this time, but, you know, you're black. You'll, you'll do it again. Yeah. You know, these type of things. So I'm fortunate that I've seen racism. Yeah. I, I, I know that it exists. But most times when it came to me, it, it was either so blatant or it was more by the pen, yeah. you know, literally more. I think for my generation, racism showed its head more in policies than it did always dead in your face because the youth that we were growing up with, we weren't gonna allow a white kid to push us in the face or call us a name or any of that. They knew that there would be consequences. And so the, the, even though the white people were the minority in our neighborhood, the fascinating part of it was that when it came to power, influence, and wealth, they were still the top 1%. Yeah. And it's that structural racism as well, isn't it? And the one that you can't see sometimes, which yeah. is um, also as, as dangerous. Um, and we'll maybe come back onto some of these things. But as you know, this is the Desert Island Discs. Yeah, so, um, yeah. Desert Island Gems, actually. I'm sorry, I mean, I don't know this. I'm a comedian <laughs> and we in here having deep conversation. Uh, no, we'll come back to that. So um, I'm going to cast you away to Desert Island mm -hmm. and, you know, you're going to take with you some gems that will remind you about the important parts of your life as well. Mm -hmm. So what's your first gem that you would take to this Desert Island? Now, outside of this, we can't take we can't take the Quran, right? That's already going. That's yeah, a given. That's already okay. We good then, <laughs> okay? Because I'm like everything else is just a bonus. So the first gem, and are these physical things? No, just 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 ideas, ideas, okay. thoughts, uh, quotes, etc. That have meant something to you throughout your life. So the first one I'm going to say is uh, a statement that I heard when I first became Muslim. And it was called, it, the quote is, accept your own and be yourself. Accept your own and be yourself. The reason why I would take that with me is because if I'm in a desert island, that I'm by myself. So I A, need to figure out who I am and make sure that I remain and be mindful of that identity. Because um, sometimes when you're, in your, when you're to yourself, uh, the, the sound becomes even louder, right? Filled with a lot of insecurities, a lot of doubts, a lot of fears, but also a lot of um, intuition, a lot of uh, creativity, um, and a lot of growth. And so to keep my sanity, I would have to remember, just accept who you are, which is first a servant of God, right? And then realizing that as creative as he is, I'm creative. 
uh, as uh, able as he is, I'm able. Because as long as I remember those things, I'll not lose my sanity. That would be my that'd be my first thing. That's beautiful, and and, and I'd love to hear more about that. So, um, you've told us a bit about your, you know, what life was like growing up, and then I think at the age of seventeen, you became a Muslim. Yeah, yeah. Um, tell us about your your story. How did that come about? How did you become a Muslim? So crazy. Uh, when I say crazy. Um, I really do believe that Allah has a true plan for us, right? Because the way I'm gonna tell this to you, you would you would be like, this would be a story, like a storybook. But remember when I was telling you how I would hear about Chuck D and I would hear Rakim. Um, so all of this is going on in my, in my life, right? Uh, I remember I made a radio and I took a, cassette tape. I know this is probably before some of the people in this room's time, but there was a thing called cassette tape, and it was a Walkman. I took the Walkman and I took two speakers that my uncle threw away out of his car. I wanted a boom box, but I couldn't afford one. I took uh, a, uh, let's just say a Harrods, if I'm being generous, an upscale back box from a department store. Cut two holes in it, put the speakers there, ran some wires from this Walkman, turned them into a way that they could play through these big speakers, spray painted the box to look like a- Your own boom box. <laughs> my own boom box, right? And so, believe it or not, even though people laughed, I literally would walk up and down the street with this little box, even though I couldn't carry it like a handle. <laughs> I had to carry it like a baby. But anyway, I was listening to uh, Rakim, and uh, on this tape, it had Rakim and it had Chuck D on there. So I'm probably about 13 years old, maybe 14 at the time. And uh, there was a song where uh, Chuck D said, uh, it was called Bring the Noise. And he says, uh, Farrakhan's a prophet and I think you ought to listen to what he can say to you. What you want to do is follow for now. All of the people say, right? So when he's saying this, I hear this and then I hear this, all praise is due to Allah and that's a blessing, right? I'm hearing this on Rakim. But I'm, you know, I'm just singing along and for some reason it's just resonating with me, right? So I get to high school. I'm trying to, you know, be in this gang or whatever. I go to a new high school. Um, I get into a class, and the teacher said, you got to do an autobiography. I mean, not an autobiography. You got to do a biography about uh, somebody, a black leader or something. So everybody was doing everything on um, Martin Luther King, you know, what would I call the standards, yeah. right? You know what I'm saying? You know, just the standards, which basically lets me know you don't read. Now, in elementary school and in middle school, I remember picking up this book called The Autobiography of Malcolm X. I, as I said, I was always a reader. So I remember reading this book when I was young. Didn't, didn't it, it was just a book for me, but it, I knew who Malcolm X was, right? But then all of a sudden, I was like, you know what? I don't even want to do that. I'm going to do this on, this. who is this Farrakhan guy, right? So I go and do this whole research, go down this rabbit hole, and on this time they have microfilm. And at this particular high school, to have microfilm in the high school was an elite high school. So I get that, go through all this stuff, and I'm like, oh, this is a real person. Like, I'm thinking I'm just 
being a troublemaker. I'm being a mischief because this is the kind of person I was. I would always do the extreme. So I started reading all of this and I was like, oh, okay, cool. I, I get to it. But at this time, I also get into a fight at high school. So I get kicked out for fighting at this high school. At this time, I'm not living with my mom and my stepfather, but the high school was zoned in in their neighborhood. This is what age? Uh, 16. So um, when the principal told me I was suspended, pending whether or not I was going to be kicked out of the entire school district. And in Missouri, if you get kicked out of a school, you're not allowed to go to any school. Like in that in that area. So if you don't live, if you live in a particular district, if they kicked you out, you can't go back. So um, I go over to my mom's house because she hears that I'm getting spending, but she wants me to be over there when she gets home. So my stepfather happens to be there. He opens the door and he's like, and me and him did not get along. He's like, what's 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 going on? I was like, no, nah, I got suspended. And he's like, man, you need to go upstairs and listen to this dude on TV. Maybe he can get, put something into your head because you just, you know. And I was like, I don't, I don't even like you. Like, why are you even talking to me? And, and neither one of us was feeling each other, right? So uh, here's a guy that I have no respect for telling me to go listen to somebody. when If you'd have been who you should be, I could have listened to you, you know. I go in there and it's the Phil Donahue show. And, you know, Donahue always would rip his um, uh, uh, guests a new one when he would get on there, right? But on this particular show, there's this black guy sitting in a chair with his legs, you know, super tight, very posture, suit, bow tie, hair. I mean, looks looks beautiful, sharp. And they are giving them the business, right? Like they just, these white people are just like, it felt like he was at a Klan rally and it's a town hall meeting where white people are going to let you know that they don't appreciate you. And so I'm like, oh, he's about to get them. You know, like I'm thinking he's about to be aggressive. He's about to be, you know, ignorant, belligerent. You know, the normal way that a person on the field, Dr. Field show, I mean, Dr. Uh, the Donahue show would be. And this gentleman was everything polar opposite. They would hurl some evil, mean stuff to him. And his conversation was so intellectual. Um, it was accurate. He could take what they said, turn it back around and let them see themselves. And it was almost to the point where it was embarrassing to to Phil Donahue because he's probably like, oh my God, like this is not going the way that the producer said it would turn out. And it made them realize while we're looking at him, because they were trying to basically say that Louis Farrakhan was a racist. And it made them finally have to realize, oh, we are the racist. And I, I, I'm sitting there and I'm like, who is this? Like immediately, I heard nothing about Islam. I didn't hear any of that, but I just knew. They said the name, they said at the end, Louis Farrakhan. I said, that's the guy? 
My big box. Yeah, I'm like, this was uh, Public Enemy was talking about him. And then he said something about Allah. And that hit me. I'm like, he said Allah. And then he said God. And I'm like, oh, that's that's God. That's what he's saying. So it's like Rakim was saying that. And then he, I said, after the after the thing went off, I I never forget it. I had a a, a look a, a red car. I told my um my mom and uh, I was was dating some girl at the time, and I told him I said, listen, uh, I don't know what that is, but y'all need to take me to a bookstore. I went to the bookstore and I was like, listen, um, I just saw somebody named uh, Louis Farrakhan on TV. Uh, where, where can where can I find out more about him? And it was a black bookstore, and they were like, "Oh yeah, you can get this book called Message to the Black Man." So then, with some other brothers that was in this store, and they were like, "Are you interested in Minister Farrakhan?" I was like, "Yeah, I mean, I just saw him on TV, and he was amazing. I'm trying to learn." They's like, "Yeah, he's a Muslim." And I'm like, "What's that?" They said, "You got to give up pork." You got to give up, like literally, just running that alcohol, all of that. I was, and then they said, and girls. I said, you can't be with girls. They said, well, you can, but you can't, you know, like, you know, be disrespectful and have uh, frivolous relationships. And I was like, oh, okay. That day, I gave everything up. Really? I just was like, let's do it. They took me to their house. They gave me a Quran. Um, uh, took my shahada in in a in an apartment on that day. On that day, okay. that day, like literally, I was like done, done because this is amazing, right? So then I started going to the mosque, and then I would go. So I went to like four or five different um, places about because I was always interested in religion, right? But no answers when I was little. I wasn't getting answers. It was always like, well, God works in mysterious ways, and you know, it, it, don't worry about that. You can't question God, and you can't. And I was like, "What? Well, why not?" I mean, you know. I'm... So the long story short of it was when I started asking questions, I was actually getting answers. Certain things that always seemed weird to me. I, I love history. I love knowledge, and there I was quenching my thirst. You know what I mean? It was like, man, this is this is refreshing. Learning about like different things, why you don't celebrate Halloween, why you, you know, just the little nuances of things that I had been doing my whole life. And now where I used to feel where I wasn't, um, I didn't fit in, I felt so comfortable. Like for people that did not even know me, pick me up like basically off the street and just, just like, you know, open their door. I was like, this is. In the time I was living in, and especially in St. Louis, black men were dying literally in St. Louis every day by gun by gun violence. And to go go up to some other young black men who are in suits and selling final call papers and selling pies, and I mean, I'm like, who? And then, and then to find out that these guys used to be some some killers, and you know, then you also had some that were intellectuals, some of them that never seen the streets. But to see people that you know under normal circumstances, if something something of a great greater and higher magnitude would not have come into their lives and their hearts, could have murdered you, you know. And to hear them allowing somebody when they're offering them a paper to tell them to get out of their face for they hurt them and. 
they like have a blessed day. Like, so did you get into all that? Were you really committed that from the? From oh man, from, like, from that, the from that point, I had the suits on, the bow ties. The I had my hair brushed over with the part. I, I'm in the street selling final calls, selling bean pies. I went back, so I got kicked out of one high school. And this this story here kind of ties into why I always tell Muslims get to know all our scriptures. Because through knowing all of the scriptures that Allah has given to all the people in the world, you'll build friendships that you never would have thought you'd have. So the Bible study that I used to go to, right? When I got kicked out of high school, I couldn't go back to school my senior year. But my mother remembered the principal of the high school that I normally went to before they moved. He just so happened to be the son uh, or a deacon at the church that I grew up in, his, whose, his father was the preacher there. So she tells him that we used to be members of that church, whatever. My son got kicked out. Can you give him a chance? I'm not even allowed to go I'm not because I'm not living in that area. This man said, yeah. He said, as long as you come back with a positive attitude, but if you get in trouble one time, you're gone. But I had just become Muslim. So the guy that they remembered where I was, you know, wearing a blue rag in my back pocket or I was cutting the fool every day, I came back to school first day of school. When I this is when I knew I had my own identity. I came to school in a suit. I wore a suit every day. I wore a suit and slacks four days a week. I would wear jeans one day a week. I carried a briefcase instead of a book bag. Um and everything went from yeah, no, to yes, sir, no, sir. How you doing, brother? What's going on, sister? How you f to all of my peers. So everybody who where I was on the lowest rung, I ended up becoming the, the guy that was instead of a gang member, I was a gang mediator. Um, the most I ended up getting an award, a scholarship for the most improved student in the whole school and this whole thing. And to the point I used to try to do dawah every day on everybody. All, everybody in that school became a bean pie eater. They became a reader of a final call. Um, and then to the point in my accounting class, uh, her name had a teacher named Miss Shanklin. I used to try to teach the sisters, don't wear red lipstick. That That's that's uh, something that prostitutes used to have to wear. You know, all of this kind of, they were like, what? I'm like, yeah, sister, you don't need that. You know, you're beautiful as you are. You don't, you know, blah, 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 blah. She used to say, okay, if you can just be quiet Monday through Thursday, on Friday, every Friday, I'll allow you to speak to the class. And I used to do dawah and speak to the class and read speeches like from Minister Farrakhan and other imams every Friday. It was like I held Juma, didn't even know it. I was holding Juma in accounting class every Friday just so I would be quiet. So yeah, it, it had an a, amazing, amazing change, wasn't it? Yeah, man, the 180, the focus. 180 degrees, man, you know, and whereas I never went to school and did good in my regular homework every day, I, and but I was never, I was always a C student, yeah. even though I had an A mind, because from that particular point, I went from that to uh, just being able to, uh, Get straight A's, you know, just, you know, yeah. Did you know Minister Farrakhan over the years then, or have you met him? Or I've only met him two times, 
I met him twice. Um, but over the years, yeah, I've had opportunities where I'm always in the room, whether it was holding security for the minister or, you know, being at different events and helping out and, and just helping to make things possible whenever he came to our city and stuff like that, yeah. And one thing that I've been reading a bit more about is the, particularly the story of, um, which is fascinating, about uh, Imam Warisud Dean Muhammad and you know, I guess after Elijah Muhammad, mm. you know, passed away, and then what the story was around that. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you feel that that the whole nation of Islam has evolved over many decades? Has it changed a lot? What's your kind of analysis of? Okay, so when, but first, when you say evolved, can you can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by by that, or how it's changed? I guess since the seventies, or you know. Um, because obviously that was a big change, wasn't it? When um, Imam Warithdin Muhammad kind of took it in a different direction, and then yeah. Minister Farrakhan came back and yeah, kind of put know, it back put on it the, back to the tracks of what what, he'd what everybody was familiar yeah. with. I think here's the thing. Um, I don't judge Imam Warithdin. I don't judge the minister. I believe they both had a work. I remember one time hearing um, the Most Honorable Elijah Muhammad say that both of them would have a, a duty and they would both reach the masses of our people. And they did that in the ways that they both see fit. Because I think there's a uh, path that both that was still needed for both. And what I mean by that is, you know, with Iman Wharf Dean, I, I have tons of my fans, uh, fans and friends and family who are uh, members of uh, Iman Wharf Dean's community. Uh, but also, of course, I was raised in the Nation of Islam community. Um, but everybody says the same thing. At the end of the day, we both be, believe in Allah. We both believe in Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. May Allah be pleased with him as well. You know, the 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 thing for me is I don't get into the labels. I don't get into the labels. That was the path that was best for me. Uh, when I first came into Islam, I had literally, literally, no, no joke about it, I had literally three communities pulling me, saying that this is where I need to be, right? But as I went, the reality was, why can't I be at all the communities? Because I came to Islam because I noticed where Christianity was so fragmented. Everybody feels like they got the right practice of Christianity. But it's Christianity at the root of it. Whereas when, and with Islam, you felt like there was no one, uh, well, Islam, it basically accepted other people's religion. If you were Christian, alhamdulillah. You know, if you were a Jew, alhamdulillah. You know, nobody, nobody ostracized you. They still said to treat you with dignity and respect. And that was all I needed to know was because it was like when they talked about the people of the book and I'm like, oh, so Christians, they all right. Yeah, but you, this, this is more of a full un, unadulterated scope of what Allah is is given. So I'm like, oh, so I can be Muslim, I can still read the I can read the Bible, I can read the Torah, I can do all okay, okay, this is where I need to be. So for me, when it came down to why I chose 
the nation of Islam was because that was the people that actually came and did dawah with me and took the time out and really um, got me on a path. They gave me the structure that I felt that I needed. And there's a group of men and women in America that need that level of structure, that need that level of um, discipline from whether it's how to eat, how to think, you know, giving them something to do at all times, right? To finally, because some of them didn't have a, a family structure to deal with. And at the same time, with Imam Wharf Dean community, you have the same thing. Some some communities were disciplined and structured enough where the, the new brothers and sisters that came in had a support system where they could flourish. But that just wasn't the path that I came in at. And so I, I think what everybody started to realize when I started even getting into the comedy circuit was initially some people were very standoffish from me because they thought, oh, he's with the Nation of Islam. And then when they finally met me, they like, oh, he go to Juma prayer? Oh, he fast? Oh, he, he and he's familiar with all of this. I didn't know they did that in the nation. Well, you wouldn't you wouldn't know unless you would take the time out to to build bridges, you know. And I think that was the beautiful thing that I loved about the Allah Made Me Funny comedy tour was you had a brother who uh, in Azar Usman, you know, uh, who. Uh, was from the what I would call the mainstream part of Islam, what everybody's familiar with. Preacher Moss, of course, my my big bro, uh, who's with Iman Wharf Dean community, and then myself in the nation. So it was still a microcosm of what was going on in the world, right? You had all of these communities, and each one of them made major milestones that made Islam. Um, to be respected, not I won't say accepted, but to be respected throughout the world that we live in. Tell, we'll go back to your desert island. So mm. Tell us about your second gem that you would take to the desert island. Okay, second gem. Um, okay. So this one um, is a verse from the Quran. Even though it's, I know we got the Quran. But you can still pick particular okay, verses right, that. So it was uh, Surah 2, Ayat 148. And it uh, talks about um, to each one is their um, own journey to which they uh, need to strive towards or run toward as if it were in a race, right? I'm, I know I'm truly paraphrasing it, so forgive me for not quoting it exactly. Now, a lot of people talk about that has to do with uh, going towards prayer, okay? I take it a little bit deeper than that too um, because as Allah say he, he's the one that knows interpretation but what it says for me is we all got a purpose but you got to run toward it as if you are in a race and why that stood out to me was because for so long man I was as you could hear from my story I was all over the place you know not having a particular direction feeling like I was good at a lot of things but not sure of what I should do. And, um, you know, when I found um, my faith, it gave me a direction. They felt like it gave me a purpose. When I found that I could actually speak in front of people um, and, and actually realizing that comedy is, is, is holistic healing, 
you know, um, making somebody feel a lot, a lot better when they left you than when they met you. That's Sadaka, you know what I mean? So I'm saying to myself, I had a purpose. And so no matter where I'm at, to remind myself that I got a purpose and run that and run toward that and aspire to it and try to work at perfecting it will always keep you um, in a moment, you know, not not biding your time, not just getting through because that's a struggle in itself. But when you actively working towards a goal that you're born to do. Yeah. And so that comes on really well to, I guess, your life as a comedian. Mm. So I think you started comedy formally when you were about, in your, about 26 or so. Yeah, I about think. 26, yeah. yeah. So that was about 1999. Um, and I guess one of the main things that you've touched upon is about the Allah Made Me Funny tour. Mm. And that was... I guess around 2003, 2004. Yeah, about 2003. And so the context was after 9-11, particularly mm-hmm. in America, and and it then became this massive tour, and I think you've you've travelled to over 37 countries, yeah. and, you know, it, it went across the world. So tell us a bit about, I mean, how did you find um, those kind of days in the Allah Made Me Funny? You, you talked about how the, all three of you, you know, had came with very different audiences and also bring different things to the table and you're able to come together for that mm-hmm. um and it, i just recall i mean it was very new for the muslim com- community because you know muslim comedians wasn't really a thing right <laughs> right i mean how did you find like tell us a bit about the comedy how did that uh, about the tour and your memories of you know why it was so successful and what impact it had and what were the audiences like because you know in many places you know you see Muslim audience, they don't laugh or they just... Right. You know, it takes a while for them. I think it's different 20, yeah, you know, many they years they later. So, tell me a bit about your memories of kind of that whole period. So uh, first and foremost, uh, shout out to the big bro, Preacher Moss. Um, that, uh, that brother has always uh, got a uh, soft spot in my heart, right? Uh, because if it wouldn't have been for us both being Muslim, I'm not going to say that a law made me funny would have never happened because that was written, but I don't think it would have happened when it did. Um, Preach and I met actually at a non-Muslim function. We were both at uh, a comedy club in uh, Madison, Wisconsin called Funny, what is I think it's called Funny Business. He might call in and tell you later, but we were at this one particular comedy club and when I tell you, man, it was in the dunya. Like, I mean, it was in the dunya. But he was the headliner that week. I came in. I was the feature act. He didn't know me. I didn't know him. I'm like, Preach Moss, you know. Now, my name was Azim, but, you know, he didn't put two and two together. Until we both were, like, feeling bad. Like, and, and he was at the bar. And I was like, man, I just wish I'd have had got me some. All I said is I wish I'd have got me some hot tea or something. And he said, um... They got some, I think they got some apple cider. And I was like, oh, cool. I was like, praise be to Allah, right? For I, you know, and he's like, you Muslim? And I was like, yeah. And he said, uh, me too. I sound like him. I was like, well, like salam. And from that moment, we just hit it off. Like, so the that whole weekend was he and I doing shows together. And when I left, he gave me some tapes from Iman Wharf Dean Muhammad. So we just stayed in touch. 
he would come to St. Louis sometimes. I'd be there. He'd be like, hey, I'm going to do this college. Uh, you want to ride with me? Yeah. We did a couple of those. And then the thought came up. He said, what you think about if we uh, did something like uh, shows for just Muslims? Would you be down with that? I said, "Oh, absolutely. Let's. I mean, when? Like, all I. It didn't. I didn't. It wasn't about money. It wasn't about uh, where we gonna do it at. All I knew was if somebody else is thinking the way I'm thinking about doing something for our community, let's do it. And so, next thing you know, he called me. Said, "Okay, I think we gonna be able to do something. Um, we gonna call it a law made me funny." So, you know, I guess he pre I mean he, Azar and I found it, Allah made me funny, got it done. You know, for me to be a founding member of that was was amazing. But it was also interesting because everywhere we went, we either felt we either dealt with one was I, I was in the Nation of Islam, so some of them felt weird about that till they met me. Then they would like that would change to or be where it was we come into a place and they got it separated where the sisters are sitting on this side. I'm like, what, what are y'all doing, man? What, what is this? This is not. So we had to literally teach our community how to do entertainment. We had to educate um, our community that it's okay to laugh. We had to educate them that, you know, um, Everything doesn't have to be buttoned up just so that you can actually relax and be yourself. And also, I think the most important thing we taught was being authentic. Because a lot of us, when we come to the masjid or when we're in um, an area where everybody doesn't know us, we, we tighten up. You know, we our posture. We, we basically, we, we posture. Yeah. As opposed to saying who I am authentically is good enough. Yeah. And the benefit of being who you really are, I always say, let your hair down, so so to speak, sisters, please keep your hijab <laughs> on. But let your hair down, so to speak, or relax. Because even when somebody, if you, if you know that you relax, the flaws are shown, right? But that's a blessing, because if you're amongst people who genuinely love you, which should be our community, that actually love us, then you can have someone correct your behavior to make you a better human being. But as long as you- It's more honest, isn't it? Is it, yeah. right. You know, the, the more that you're your authentic self, authentic doesn't mean perfect. It just means this is who I am. I still might need some touching up. But if the more, I think, and that's why so many people are shocked when they see other people in the world that are doing some of these crazy things is because somewhere they let their hair down, they relaxed. But the difference was they didn't have a community of other people who are also striving and are willing to be mirrors for one another. Yeah. And what was your kind of experience as a black Muslim amongst these audiences? And particularly because a lot of immigrant community in America and you know, from Pakistan, India, etc. Did you ever feel that you were treated differently or there was a, a different relationship than had you been... Oh, you know, South Asian. Yeah. yeah, of course. I mean, I hate to say it, but yeah, of course. There was there was definitely you could feel in certain instances, um, being black was a little different from them as it relates to talking to us as it relates to leadership, as opposed to us just coming in being a vendor. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? Um, we actually um, had to clear that up. Like, or that when we would walk into certain um, uh, masjids, masalas, and so forth, when you go to these places, some of them would just look like, like we're not authentic Muslims. And I'm saying to myself, well, bro, if you ever would have came to our community to come get us, we, we've been here for years. You know, and not realizing that, I mean, Islam runs through black people's veins, especially in uh, in North America, because when they brought us there, we was Muslims. So, you know, this this has been the heartbeat of us for forever, but we've been looking for somebody. And if you've been here for years and never saw us as worthy, you know. So do you think Muslims that are black face kind of multiple kind of types of racism and Prejudice, one from white people, but even amongst the Muslim community. Well, when you say blackface, that that kind of was funny because uh, yeah. uh, when they put on blackface, that's a yeah. But anyway, but you were saying. <laughs> so I didn't mean blackface from that. I know what you're talking. So, I know what you're saying, but see, I mean, no, no, I mean, listen. Black people that are from. I got what you, you say. Know, I got what you say. But I'm a comedian. Yeah, man. yeah When no, I see it, I'm gonna say yeah, it. You know, so I see something, say something. Um. But repeat your question one more time. So I think, just do you think there's multiple types of racism black people face? Not black face, yeah. black people face. Mm. In the sense, one is from white people, but also Muslims that are black, even within the Muslim community, from other, you know, might be Arab, Pakistani, Indians, oh, yeah. and black. So we, are, we have a, a trifecta of racism. The first racism that we have is from white people. The second one we get is from Muslims uh, who are not seen as black. Um, they call themselves brown, even though uh, it's interesting because when they get around Caucasian people, then they almost wish they can choose to be Caucasian. And then you got black Muslims that are racist against themselves. Now, I know that sounds crazy because it's like, how can you be racist against yourself? But when you've been... Um, raised to hate yourself, uh, there's a lot of that that still sometimes remains unless you are very, very aware of the effects of what slavery did psychologically. Uh, Carter G. Woodson uh, wrote a book called The Education of the Negro. He also wrote a book called The Miseducation of the Negro. And in that book, he said, um, if you take a person and turn them into a, a slave, right, you can teach them where to go, right? If you tell them to go to the back door, eventually you don't have to tell them to go to the back door. He'll just go. But the deepest part of racism is, is then when you tell them to go to the back door, you don't have to tell them that no more. He'll just go. But if it's not a back door, he'll make one. So in other words, the Caucasian did such a number on black people that he also made them their own supervisor to make sure that they stay within the parameters that he set, even if he's not around. So you know how we have, we strive for God consciousness? They made us conscious of racism, where we self um we self we self impose racism on ourselves and in our own kind, versus now the goal for us is to come into God consciousness so that we can have that same mentality where we're conscious of being God like at every turn that we can, and then looking for that same thing in other people. 
So, Brother Adim, tell us about the third gem you'll take onto the desert island. So, third gem I would take would be another another quote. I don't know why these are, uh, I guess it's easier to pack. Um, and I got to tell you, by the way, let me just say this as a side. I like this. I like that these these gems, you know, because so many people, you know, it no, never really think about what's most important. What what will you what will you pack? Um, and I think that would be uh, another quote I heard years ago that said, uh, "Love for your brother or sister, what you want for yourself." And I think the reason why I would bring that one is because hopefully I wouldn't be deserted forever. But always, because here's the thing, if, if you're on a deserted island, right, everything is yours, ideally, even though we know it all belongs to Allah, right? But at the end of the day, I have dibs on everything. I'm, I'm, I'm able to account for what I want. I have the resources and so forth, right? But when we live in a life like that, even if that's deserted, and obviously I'm choosing this, if this is where I'm going to be, that's teaching me to be self-ish because I, all I have is me. But at some point, I'm a product of others. And so I have to always remember that there may be a time where I have to include others. And it's similar to a, a young man that gets married, let's say for the first 10 years of his life after he's left home in college and so forth. He's done things the way he wants to do it in his own desert. But when he be, takes on a wife, now he can't be about just what he wants. He's got a love for himself. I mean, love for her, what he also loves for himself. That means he has to be open. And taking that mentality to every part of my life, wherever I go, is going to make me better to the community it's going to make me appreciated by by others. And even if it doesn't, it's always going to be pleasing to Allah because loving for other people means that I'm going to be a giver because I want to receive. Yeah. You know what I mean? Not in a transactional way, but just in a way that you can't ask others to do what you're not willing to do yourself and be called sane. And it fights that kind of you know natural instinct to be selfish as well, isn't it? Or the ego... Mm -hmm. You know, once you in the shaitan and you know, Iblis wants you to focus on yourself, whereas right. actually, really, it's more than just yourself, isn't right. it? And it's about people around you as well. Yeah, and it's, and it's rough, man. Like, especially in um, the industry of entertainment, it's really, it's really. Um, I heard one of my uh, heroes of hip hop, Busta Rhymes, uh, just did an interview, and I just heard him say, uh, when you're following your purpose, you you, you got to be selfish because it's yours. You didn't, and it, you know, so many people, especially when it comes to relationships as as entertainers, uh, a lot of entertainers get divorced. Uh, we call them casualties of war because, but it's, I almost call it casualties of purpose, only because. Art in and of itself or whatever it is that you do. Let me not just be um, trivial and just make it about entertainment, but whatever it is that you do. Right. Uh, we got an amazing uh, audio tech guy right here. If you passionate about what you're doing, you focused. 
Because it's not about um, coming on this earth to just uh, be willy nilly. He gave you a he gave you a job. It's hard enough finding out what it is, but once you find it, you riding a wave and you on a different frequency, right? That so many other people haven't even found their frequency yet. But once you hit the frequency, you, it's you just riding. It's not that you don't care about other people, but taking a moment. So your so your talent or your gift that you have to give to the world may take you all around, but you also still got to take that minute and remember there's others yeah. that you, um, you're not on the desert. Yeah. <laughs> you got to remind yourself, what, you're what not have, on the desert. Have you had to give up and sacrifice? I mean, particularly, you know, you know, the other made me funny days, you were tra probably traveling a lot, you, there's a lot going on, and even in your own career, as you talked about, to achieve anything of substance or yeah. greatness, you have to sacrifice, something has to give. Over the years, look, what do you think you've had to sacrifice or Man, the compromise biggest, on? The biggest part was family. You know, the biggest part was time away from my uh, my children and my wife, you know. Um, I, I'm divorced from uh, my, my first wife, but my current wife has been a trooper, you know. Um, it's not easy. It, it's not easy. You know, um, when I met my my wife, I remember telling her I traveled 295 days a year. Uh, people think that this is the most glamorous life or it's, uh, it's the world's dream, because I do, I go to amazing places that Allah's created, right? And that part is beautiful, but that comes with it. If if comedians could could be at home and just drive down the street every every week and earn their pay and come back home, they do that because it's not the destination that we that we sign up for. We sign up to make people happy, make people laugh, and to express our create uh, creativity. But but missing birthdays with my children, helping with homework. You know, uh, and literally just being able to walk in the other room and look in at them on, at night or make a lot with them or, you know, read them a book or just just could see that they having a bad day just on their face because they may not have told their mom, you know. So really, it's not even just being there. It's the relationships that are built um, through osmosis that. I have to reacquaint myself with everybody when I'm home. Not being able to take the trash out so my wife don't have to do it that day, or oh man, her oil was low in the car, or just to go on a date night so she can be able to be amongst you know people with her partner. You know, those are the biggest things that we miss. And then when we get to a certain age, we start realizing like, golly, because I'm telling you, when the pandemic hit, I, I was I was home for two weeks, and I was like. Oh, I'm a guest here because <laughs> they had a rhythm. They, they had a rhythm that if I was home for this amount of days, oh, we can we can rock and roll with what he's familiar with. But I, we got to get back to it. You know what I mean? Because it, there was two different. Um, it's just because they learned to adapt to a life that that doesn't include me physically being there. If you had to do that again, would you change it? Oh man. Uh, but would you do things differently? I put it this or was way. Was it worth it? Um, I put it this way. If I could change some things, I would have changed 
when I got married and things of that nature, um, my approach with my children, I would change those things. Would I have not traveled as much? I still would have traveled. But my approach to my children um, would have definitely been better. It, it would have been better because I think uh, those were people who didn't voluntarily sign up for what, what came. So I would have done more to ensure that they knew and put more systems in place that would have allowed, hopefully, a better relationship because some of those do suffer as a result of my laser-focused ability of what I would assume was this was a way that I generated money to take care of their needs, but also realizing that you got to balance that with emotional support, you know, and with their children. So they they don't get it until they become adults, but it ain't promised that neither my children nor I would get to this point where we could be able to reflect. Because you, you, want, you want people in your life to know that, that they're loved. And the beautiful thing about it is the wife I have now is the kind of wife that will teach the children that he loves you. He not, he not. Versus who I call the plaintiff. Uh, <laughs> where, where that, Careful you don't end up in court. Now. Oh no, no, that's, <laughs> that's fine. At least you would be the plaintiff then. Um, but, but in, but in many ways, it's, it's, it's really true about what they say: the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Because the power that mother mothers have to to give children that nurturing point and parameters in their lives. Uh, gives them a better perspective, right? So that if you do have a, a, a spouse that travels quite often, it might to the child feel unfair. But if you got the mother there that's saying, hey, it's not about he don't want to be with you. This is how he keeps these lights on. And this is how you eat and these types of things. And also using it as a tool to say, depending on whatever Allah calls you to do, you might find yourself in this situation as an adult and things of this nature, helping them to see, you know. I remember asking this question with somebody, and um, their their father was a doctor who um, was traveling away a lot, etc. And that was just, you know, economically they had to do that. And one thing that he always said it was it was more about the the quality of time when he was home, because I guess it's it's cuts both ways because you get people that are physically present but if they're not emotionally or psychologically mm. present and not meeting the needs of the family that always, and so I think finding that balance is always yeah, a yeah, challenge that's a good for point. all of us isn't that's, it but that's it's also point. you know you, people might be you know have to travel for work or might not be, might be absent because I think you do have to sacrifice something yeah. but when you are there are you fully present are you fully engaged right. and I think um, it's, it's, I think it's incredibly difficult, you know, yeah. uh, balance for all, anyone. You, you, you know? hit it on the head, man. It was, a, I mean, this gets back to, I'm, I'm a music guy. And my wife, uh, shout out to Stephanie, uh, she says all the time, um, there's a song for everything, right? <laughs> there's, there's a song for everything. And there's a song by this uh, wonderful uh, female vocalist named Jill Scott that says, uh, I'm lonely when you're around. Yeah. Right. I'm lonely when you're around. So so again, you got to be physically and mentally present. Right. 
and actively engaged if you're going to do anything. Um, brings me to another point with another um, a gentleman who really helped me in personal development. His name is uh, Jim Rohn. Um, may Allah be pleased with him. He's He's gone now. But this gentleman was dropping gems his whole life. Uh, and, and I remember listening to something that he said. He said, if you work away from home, when you're away from home, be at work when you're at work. Be at home when you're at home. He said, that, that's the best advice I can give anybody that works as a traveler in whatever their profession is. Give all what you got to give when you're with your work. Do focus on that so that when you're home, don't make it about work. Present, yeah. Don't don't be at uh, dinner with your wife, texting about with your agent. You had two weeks to get with me about X Y Z, or at least give yourself dedicated time to check your email and your text messages. But when you at dinner, you know. So yeah, you got to find that balance. Fantastic. Um, and tell us about your next gem. So, um, I thought I had. I think I had three, but I got another one. I got another one. So this gym is uh, something that came to me. Uh, one of my best friends, even though we probably spent two days together in our entire time of knowing each other, has been, I personally believe, uh, you know, a lot tell us all the time, be careful uh, how you treat people because you might be entertaining strange, uh, angels unaware. He's one of those. This brother, um, no matter whenever I'm feeling down or distraught or whatever, this brother sent me something in a book. And in this book, it said, um, it says, uh, People that feel, because a lot of times I really still to this day struggle with that uh, child in me. You being a psychiatrist, I think you've come to realize this, and I didn't understand this, is that it says uh, anything that you're dealing with, especially like in your interpersonal relationships with marriage, that your biggest struggles are all rooted in childhood. Everything that you deal with is something when you can you can trace it back to your childhood. So as I've always felt insignificant, always felt insignificant. Um, and sometimes it still raises his head. But in this particular book, it said, you are so important that the day you were born, Allah said that the earth could no longer exist without you. Good God Almighty. And that's what I would share with anybody that feel alone that the, you are so important that he said that the earth could not exist anymore if you are not in it. Not, to, not tomorrow, not another minute, not another nanosecond, but because you got to be born now for it to continue to move forward. And that's, uh, that's deep. Mm. Like, so... I, and do, I would, do you mean it's all... Part of Allah's plan is that everything is yeah, I mean, happening for, the way it's supposed to happen. Example, yeah. think about how many children never made it. How many people have miscarried? How many, you know, died in crib death and so on and so forth? Uh, stray bullet, whatever the case may be. 
but even even to never even make it past, you know, like I said, just a clot, and that's it. Yeah. Um, but he he said, I gotta come forth today, right? Because he said there's a day and a time to be born, and a day and a time to pass away, which is means it's fixed. And since he's the most supreme mathematician, how could the earth exist if I didn't come? If it was already in its uh, in the in the makings of how he sees this world uh, evolving. That's very powerful as well. You know, and and I think the reason why I would have that with me is because sometimes uh, my worst part of my life was being alone, was being alone. And I have to, let me correct that. It's not that I was alone. Uh, my wife said I'm a wordsmith because words really is how I make my money, but it was that I was lonely. So learning how to stop feeling lonely and be comfortable being alone because you're not, you know, when you got God with you, when you have your purpose, you're never alone. You know, you always are with. So, subhanAllah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit around going back to comedy a little bit. Mm. And obviously, you were involved in that pivotal time with the Allah Made Me Funny tour, the Muslim comedians, you know, that kind of certainly, you know, was a marker, you mm. know, in the Muslim community you know, particularly in the West. Since then, we've seen a lot of change and growth. So a lot of Muslim comedians have then become mainstream. So we've seen on Netflix shows, you know, you've got, you know, even in Disney and Hollywood, you know, yeah. people like Azhar Usman and uh, Muammar and Rami yeah. Yusuf. You know, the Muslim identity is yeah. certainly more present um, in the mainstream. And, and And I wonder what your thoughts are around what that implications of that is and also what pe people have had to compromise and how that, you know, how you see that as a comedian. Because I think there's always been in in the Muslim community, there's bits that Muslims do for Muslims mm -hmm. and then there's a bit about Muslims in the wider mainstream and there's always that discussion where there's politics, media, entertainment about, you know, how do you stay true to your faith mm. while meeting the demands of usually is what is a very very materialistic very kind of hedonistic kind of um you know lifestyle and domain and it burns people out as well you know and yeah. we see that with celebrities so what's your kind of analysis and thoughts of i guess what's happened since then mm -hmm. since those days where there's muslim comedians for muslim shows you know that kind of thing too right. You know the growth in mainstream, and I think that's with been with streaming, with multimedia, with social media, and how have you balanced that yourself, perhaps, in terms of the the pull and the lure of that versus, mm -hmm. you know, the risks and the benefits, and you know, I'm just fascinated with that whole yeah, area. Yeah. I mean, you've got obviously you've got legends like Dave Chappelle and all these people that are, are on a very different level, you right. know. But you know, I think that whole domain, you know, yeah, it's I think fascinating. It's a, it's a really good question. Um, you know, because even though uh, Azar Usman, Preacher Moss, and myself define the space as called Muslim comedy, um, there were already tons of uh, comedians uh, and entertainers who were Muslim, right? Uh, or comedians who happened to be Muslim. 
Uh, and that's kind of how I've always, uh, I've actually enjoyed being able to just say that. Because when you just say Muslim comedian, it sounds either, it's going to either come across as being very niche um, and come to the other comedians uh, who are our peers in the space of that realm of comedy would either feel like, oh, they're not that funny. You know, they're not legit comedians. Versus where I grew up in working in the comedy clubs and and things of that nature, so I know that in that when I became a comedian, I wasn't drinking, you know, I didn't smoke, I didn't do any of that. So I went into the space where everybody would go up, ninety percent of them would go up with a drink in their hand or a cigarette, and I just went up with um, orange juice or cranberry juice, whatever. I'll give you my secret recipe, but. I would have this particular way, and I just went up and did did my thing. I didn't curse when I when I started doing comedy. I was just straight clean comedian. Boom, 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 boom. But I'm going in mainstream clubs, so that's how I, that's how I built my chops. So, whereas some uh, of the comedians who are Muslim that have come since uh, the advent of Muslim comedy. Uh, still have not done it that way. They did it at the banquet hall or what have you. And so I think there's things that can come with that. Like I still feel like you need the comedy club <laughs> because it's it's real, right? Allah didn't teach us to become Muslims only to be with those who are already Muslims, right? He taught us to be Muslims so that we could go and change the world, right? You know, that we would basically be the example Thank you so much for reminding me, but <laughs> but uh, that's funny. But anyway, uh, <laughs> he's ever present. But but the but the reality of it is 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 that's why I'm so thankful that I came up in mainstream comedy because it taught me to be myself despite the environment. Let me impose myself on the environment instead of the environment bullying me to be that way. So I think like people who I really admire in this industry, uh, one of them, if you've ever, if you've never seen this guy, if you've never seen this guy, he's a Muslim comedian, uh, but he grew up in the non-Muslim conformist uh, type of environment. He came up uh, working in the comedy clubs. His name is Ali Sadiq. Uh, is a U.S. comedian, I think, out of Houston, Texas. When I tell you, like, I'm like, that's one of my all-time favorites. Uh, but he's Muslim. But his his goal is he's a, he's all around the world, uh, sharing laughter and love to everybody, and doing it in such an eloquent way that I feel like anybody who's Muslim has to has to support this brother because he uh, really is setting the mark so high that it affords us the opportunity to um, have the youth look at him and say, wow, I can I can also aspire to do this. You know what I mean? Because he shows you like, hey, I'm not perfect. He's kind of got it. You know, he's going to let his hair down, if you will, and be authentically himself. But at the same time, I don't I don't feel that when I watch him work and maneuver in the society that he's in because he's on a whole nother level than I am. Right. He can't really walk down any street and everybody doesn't know him. But at the same time, he doesn't try to have to be in everybody's lane. He knows his lane. He identifies as his purpose, which is his goal is to entertain you, but he's going to do it on his terms. And and I think that I don't care what what activity you want to do as an artist. If you want to be in films, OK, I mean, as much as I want to be an actor, 
uh, you'll never see a zim in a dress. That's that's not gonna be a zim because that's you're never gonna see me as a a, a crack dealer because that's not a zim. The only way you'll see me as a crack dealer is if I end up changing. You know what I mean? It's got to be something artistically in it that's going to be a benefit that I can, you know, that I can leave away with. You know what I'm saying? So I think that's the the mindset and you can't really allow your imam, you can't allow your your parents, you can't allow anybody um, once you find out your art. That's what art is. If you're designing it right in the midst of it, they come in and say, what is, what is that? that? That's haram. I'm not even done with this. You know what I'm saying? I'm not even done with this work. You don't even know where I'm going. You know what I'm saying? And you got to allow the artist to be creative. And then he or she can define themselves and say, is this a piece that I need to share with everybody? Or is this a piece I need for myself? You you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And, there, and again, being, being able to come do the Muslim comedy tours, that's what I love. I, I, I can do anything else. But I literally ask myself every year, let me do uh, humanitarian work with the uh, Muslim organizations and charities because it gives me a chance to spend quality time with my Muslim family, one-on-one. I think I know tons of Christian comics who do mainstream, but they also still make time for their Christian community. I think that's imperative for us to spend time with our community and do that. So yeah, so I can talk of, do the hijab piece. Because some pieces I won't do in front of non-Muslims because it would be the equivalent of saying certain things be, uh, in a group that might already feel a slant against us anyway, or may have some weird um, ideological perspectives. So, you have to use your wisdom to interview you got, you got to, And that's the thing I love yeah. about comedy. It teaches you a lot about life. You got to read the room. Yeah. And, and going full circle back as we, as we come towards the end of this interview, which I have found fascinating, is um, if you were to meet a younger Azim, so back in your teens, um, what would you say to him? You're, you're worthy. Um, stop doubting yourself. I love you. And you will be loved. That's what I would say to me. That's what I would say to me. Because I, I feel like that was the things that I felt I had to prove. You know, everything was you had to prove was physical. Nothing mental. N nothing mental. And... Realizing that uh, you can feel abandoned, but when you realize that you got a source, yeah. you're never without. And in terms of your legacy, I mean, how would you like to be remembered? Oh, man, that's a good one. Um, a man who tried to right his wrongs. Um, a man who loved his family and became a better man as a result of that. Um, and I think the biggest one would be that he actually found and fulfilled his purpose. Um, because even still, sometimes even for myself, as much as I feel like this is my purpose, 
um, it still feels like there's a lot more that needs to be dealt with, needs to be done. And I still allow some of my own fears, probably in self-sabotage in many regards, uh, to hold me. So um, that would be my goal. Because here's the thing, if, if my purpose is to be a father, then let me be the best father. Let me keep fighting that fight. You know, uh, let me keep fighting the fight with uh, being a great husband. Let me be uh, found that even amongst my friends and even in my peers, that they all can say he's authentic, you know. And as we come back to the desert island, so you can take a luxury item with you. Mm. What would that be? That's a lot of stuff. Now. And it can't it can't be anything with technology. So you're, yeah, I'm good with that. I'm good with the technology, but it's like, hmm. hmm. At first, I, was, I remember when you first sent sent me that, asked me that question. I was thinking to myself, like, man, you know, you can't say a person because that's slavery. Uh, <laughs> white people used to say that all the time. Oh, I've already brought Barnett with me. It's <laughs> a wonderful luxury item. Top shelf Negro. Um, <laughs> no, you can't, you can't do that. <laughs> um, luxury item. Mm. Something that would remind you of people back home or something you can't live without when you travel or something like that. Man, that's a good one. So... It would it would be one or two things. It would be uh, a photo of my family, my children, my wife, my mother, you know, my grandmother, because those are the people that, in many ways, have made me who I am. And so, because initially I thought about a book. That was like literally, like if I could take something, I'd have probably took a book. But I think I'd probably take the picture because I remember the book. You know what I mean? Like I can I can picture them, but it's nothing like seeing. Well, you can take both. So that will be your luxury item. And what okay. book, apart so, from the Quran, what book would you take? Oh, okay. So, I, oh, okay. All right. I can have two things. This, he is so generous. Okay. Um Sure, your name not Kareem. Okay, anyway, um, I would take this book, and this book is called Secrets of Divine Love. And that book um, is really amazing because it really, it, it, it talks about the faith. Um, it really, it, to me, it's like, maybe I would, it, it even explains it to Muslims and non-Muslims about what Muslims believe. Each of the pillars of Islam um, even talks about death, which is one of the biggest things. I I have a big fear of this whole death thing, right? Um, about self-esteem, about generosity, about, uh, you know, even with fasting. It, it explains it in such a way that it is a constant refresher course um, and an expanded knowledge base, I think, um, of what you should extract from, um, I would say, for, for lack of a better word, what you extract from um, pressing uh, the words of Allah every time you read the Quran and every time you interact with somebody. 
And the bigger part of it is, is that, you know, hey, maybe I come across somebody else who might need that book. Brilliant. So, Brother Liam, thank you so much for your time. Man, thank you for pleasure. having me. Thank you for having me. I need to get you back so you can get a better rest for tonight's performance. Yeah, yeah, got to get to work tonight. It's the first time in five weeks that I'll be uh, performing. I took uh, quite a bit of time off. Alhamdulillah. So, so please keep us in your prayers. Um, enjoy the rest of your tour and your ongoing work. And may Allah subhanahu wa continue to give you strength Amen. and um, keep you safe and bless you and your family. So, jazakallah khair. Uh, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Thank you, brother.